On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Marcus, coming up, it's the 50th anniversary of the passing of one of rock's all-time icons, Jim Morrison. Can you believe 50 years gone? I am surprised that it has been 50 years. We were talking about this, and we did the math, and we both, I think, looked at each other and were like, what? 50 years? So... We thought we would do an episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, just talking about Jim, just talking about his passing, and some things we've been learning along the way, as we always do here on the podcast, which is brought to you by our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Guess what, Marcus? They've been busy. Now they're wide open. And... I was there for the Crooked Eye Band last week. They were asking about you, and I had one that's going to make your eyes and ears, every sense explode, your mouth, your taste buds, a double fudge coffee stout. Oh, And geez. I know what a stout guy you are. So. Oh, geez. So we'll, uh, we'll have one next time we go in. And they want us to come in and do a podcast soon. We definitely have to record a podcast in their brew room. That's a fun place to record a podcast. But we can't do it when it's one of them 95-degree days and super (laughs) humid or else we will melt in that room. (laughs) I'll tell you who had loved it in that brew room is Jim Morrison. Uh, He loved alcohol, the effects of it. But it created a problem in him that were he 20 years younger when all this was happening, would have been diagnosed as a serious uh, alcohol allergy probably because uh, Paul Rothschild, who produced all the Doors records, called it Jekyll and Hyde-like. You know, that he'd be the sweetest, kindest, most thoughtful and creative person, get drunk and turn into Mr. Hyde. There had to be some sort of allergy to the uh, alcohol itself or obviously some sort of bad chemical reaction with his body. Right. He should have stuck to the hallucinogens and the cannabis all more natural. That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, you know, Jim, uh, uh, who projected his self-image as a shaman of sorts, and we'll get into talking a little bit about all that stuff. Yeah, he would have. And uh, probably more peyote and stuff like that, which became part of the picture As the psychedelic 60s kick in, as his life, think about it, his life is kicking into gear as the 60s kick into high gear, literally, in L.A. and Venice and San Francisco and all over, really. You know, there he is in the middle of it, James Douglas Morrison and his dad. We'll get into more of a discussion about his dad, but not uncommon amongst uh, kids whose parents are Navy officers especially. He moved around a lot. We'll talk a little bit about that. But he would go on to form and front one of the most seminal rock bands of the 60s and of all time, a band that we've talked about that is kind of a a touchstone for teenagers, especially guys. 
Uh, discovering the Doors is kind of a rite of passage. You know the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, yeah. And we want to talk about the man who really the Doors did not exist without. They tried. He was the voice of the Doors. He was their manifestation or their representation, even though they were a collective and you needed all four parts of that band for it to be what it was. They wouldn't have had that sound. And this term, I think, is going to keep coming up as it came up with the Stooges and Iggy Pop, who wanted to bend the blues to his vibe. I think Jim Morrison and the Doors did the same thing. Yes, And bent absolutely. the blues, but added a trippy-ass vibe to it that the traditional blues did not have. One of the things that the Doors had, other than Jim's mind that no one else had, was his <laughs> voice. He had that rich baritone, and when he put power to it oh my god it would freeze you in place and an example of that is the live version of gloria that they do on the alive she cried album and i remember still to this day hearing that for the first time as a kid and being like this guy is amazing His voice is hypnotic, and you could tell by his presence that he was pretty impressive. And I had heard The Doors plenty of times up until that point, but hearing that live that version recording. Oh, yeah. just sealed the deal for me. I was lucky enough to receive as a Christmas present The Doors Felt Forum box set. It's a series of shows that they did in their prime, seven shows in two days or three days, something like that. And you just can dive into that live feeling of the doors. Yeah, there were uh, stories of Jim Morrison being drunk on stage and having some pretty horrendous performances, but if he was on his A game, he was hard to beat. And of course, being the nudniks that we are, we <laughs> tend to look into the roots of these things. Like, what kind of thing would cause a guy to be such a flaming asshole when he was drunk versus his normal personality? I think maybe you can look to his childhood. I think we often do, um, other than the moving around a lot, which Jim used to his advantage, uh, being the son of a rear admiral who would become, in your life while you're a kid, a famous member of the U.S. Naval Forces by leading the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964. That was the thing that gave the government the okay, so to speak, to go into Vietnam 
uh, full scale in 1965. And he was Jim was the oldest, and he had a sister Anne and a younger brother Andrew. They aren't much part of his story because they're a few years younger. Those two were closer together in age. But Anne makes some interesting comments, and I can go into that article now if you want, since this is all about those early years. Yeah, let's talk about it. Apparently, Jim's dad who was a very heavily decorated officer, became embarrassed by Jim's fame. There was a point where he sent his son a letter basically telling him, give it the fuck up, son. You're never getting anywhere with what you're doing. You have nothing to give. You have nothing to offer, no talent. And that was the rift. That was the wedge between them. And the reason that they got to that point, I think, was because of the dad employing the Navy or the military approach to discipline of yelling versus physical discipline. You know, our generation, we don't discipline our children physically, but I think sometimes without realizing it, we're learning too. You got to be sure you don't damage them otherwise. Hand in the air for having done that a couple times. What Jim did was react so negatively to that that it created this problem deep inside him and other things that he claimed through his life also traumatized him a little bit but this is the main thing that i've been able to put my finger on that caused this problem for him so i don't know if you ever heard anything about jim's dad uh saying hey i'll offer my resignation if my son's behavior is too much of an embarrassment to the navy uh, but they didn't accept it retiring as a rear admiral 15 career decorations all kinds of honors for World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. But his sister Anne comes up because she hasn't spoken a whole lot through the years. She said that she remembered Jim's misbehavior even before the doors. And said it was fun and he would always uh, play games and uh, pull pranks and that kind of stuff and get into trouble on the base. But being kids being kids, I think, is how you would put it. But his hair started to get long, and there was a point where mom had to draw the line, say, basically, you don't come back in this house, mister, unless you get a haircut. That was was the words of the dad, I'm sure. That was the influence of father military on her, too. The thing I know is that uh, he got the haircut because mm. <laughs> he, he wanted to come back in the house. And you know, on a Navy base, you don't have any problem with long hair finding a place to get a haircut, especially back in the 60s. Right? True. <laughs> yeah. thing, their dad, George, the, the Admiral, he was a pianist. He just didn't get Jim's poetry. Now, you got to realize, you know, all these people in rock and roll in the 60s were inspired by Buddy Holly or Elvis or this one and that one, right? Chuck Berry. Jim was inspired by the poets, French poets, uh, writers of an esoteric nature, the beats. When I was back there in seminary school, there was a person there who put forth the proposition that you can petition the Lord with prayer. Petition the Lord with prayer. Petition the Lord with prayer. And that's what really freaked that out because it's like, who are these fucking idiots that my son keeps proselytizing their words, right? True. But I mean, Jim as a kid, because I think of the military lifestyle he read, was a big reader. And one of the things that I read throughout different sources is he was always reading. A lot of times he was doing book reports on books that his teachers had to look up 
to see if they were actually books because they had never heard of them. Hey, Tom, can you go down to the Library of Congress to check out if this kid Morrison is blowing smoke up our ass? (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, he was like the books that he was writing about were like witchcraft and demonology from the 1700s. These were his book reports. So the teachers are like, what the hell? (laughs) Basically, these teachers were the first ones who hit their head against the wall. And then dad did, too, because his outlook on things was a combination of the beats like Ferlinghetti and, say, Rimbaud. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's combining all these different poets and their positions and views with an American heart. And there's the whole incident that's referenced in it's one of those stories that has five different versions about passing an accident on a highway and it was the inspiration for some of the lyrics in Peace Frog, you know, about Indians dying on a highway and all Indians scattered on John's highway bleeding. Ghosts crowd the young child's fragile eggshell mind. And different people say it happened differently or it didn't happen at all. And I always figure, well, the one who said it didn't happen at all is the one who's saying, oh, no. It was something just like what he said. And that was dad, I think, who said it didn't happen at all. Yeah. But that's such a military response from his dad, too. Oh, nothing happened there. He was just making that up. I'm looking at uh, comments from Sister Anne, and it was she who, in an upcoming book, which she's putting together of Jim's writings, Uh, said that she had never heard that her dad had offered to resign to the Navy. And then, of course, things really changed, I guess, when Jim died. A guy who's 27 dies in the middle of his creative peak. You know, the thing about rock and roll is you you get better, you get better as a band, as writers, whatever, and you get to a certain point. And the question a lot of them have to answer is, okay, now that we're up here, how long can we cruise? Like, how long is our international flight going to be, right? And that's always the question. I think everybody who was around in 1967 when the first album dropped thought the Doors flight was going to last a lot longer than uh, three, four years there. Yeah. Also, the fact that his body was so damaged from the alcohol by the time he passed away at 27 just shows you exactly what level he was drinking at. Because for your body to fall apart at the age of 27 during the prime of your life. That reminds me of when in the Doors episode we did, John Densmore was talking about getting that phone call the last time he talked to Morrison from Paris. Uh, right before he died, talking to him about how he sounded clear and he didn't sound drunk and he sounded good. And then, was it like three days later, he died? All I know is that for a long time, Jim Morrison's death was pretty much a settled issue. He was found in Paris in a bathtub, fully clothed. Bath was dry. The coroner, who didn't even do an autopsy, they didn't require them. At that time, I guess they do now, partially because of this case, they said it was heart failure. And given what they probably saw in the rest of his physicality, what level he was drinking at uh, from friends or associates, they might have got an idea what had happened. But there's another story that came out about Jim Morrison's death and about what possibly really happened. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll taking a look back. 50 years, just about, a few days from now, when we release this, it'll be 50 years since Jim Morrison passed. For a long time, Marcus, there was no real discussion about 
the circumstances. Yes, there was the standard, is he still alive? Did he fake his own death? And there were enough people who saw his fully clothed body laying in the bathroom in his apartment in Paris to know that there was no chance of that. He was gone. They buried him there in Paris, as we discussed. And then years go by. And despite a few conspiracy theories, nothing really more is discussed about this whole thing. It's just one of those sad chapters. Another page in the 27 Club story, right? Back in 2007, articles started to come out about what actually happened the night that Jim Morrison died. A guy named Sam Burnett. I think that's how you say it. It's either Burnett or Burnett. He says in a story back then, and it hasn't been disputed since, Jim died in a toilet stall of his club after what is believed to be a heroin overdose. A lot of people prescribe the death in the bathtub scenario to heroin overdose. Do you see a commonality where the real story kind of creeped into the manufactured one a little bit? Now, could he have been taken from that club to a bathtub where they tried to revive him at an apartment that part of the bathtub story became the story, even though it was really only the sort of cover-up of that story. There is enough of a story to believe that he died in the club, as Bernay says. There's a book that's called The End, Jim Morrison, and in it, he says that he thinks two drug dealers brought Jim Morrison's body back to his apartment. There's a corroborating story of someone in the mix here. I think his name's Patrick Chauvel. He helped run the bar at the club, and he said he remembered giving a hand to men who were carrying uh, Morrison in the staircase, indicating maybe they, that he thought initially that maybe he was drunk or something. But Chevelle later said that he thought that he was already dead because he thought they would have called an ambulance if, if Jim was still alive. And you got to agree, that's what makes sense. Later, they were seen with a, a carpet rolled up walking through the streets outside the club which was called, what, the Rock and Roll Circus, was it? Yeah. And he was there every night. It was that cool place to be in Paris at that time. And he was living there. Pam was living there by then. She had gone and found him the apartment there to move to in Paris. And all I could tell you is that he, it, the outside view was that people thought he was running from his legal troubles in the States. And what he really did, was doing, we later found out, was being Morrison. Going to Paris, partying every night, hanging out with uh, the cool people, you know? Word is, on July 3rd, he went to this club, Rock and Roll Circus, and that's where he was sold the heroin. He bought it for Corson. And at one point, Bernay noticed that they disappeared. He disappeared, and later, Bouncer broke into the uh, locked toilet stall and found Jim laying there unresponsive. A doctor who was in the house was called to examine the singer, and they found him dead. Little foam uh, on his nose and some blood. That's where the doctor got the idea that it was probably a heroin overdose, because that's one of those things that they see in overdose scenes, I guess. So was he snorting it? Because they would have said there was a needle at the scene. My guess is he They said that they think that he was. They think he was uh, snorting it because he was afraid of needles. I didn't know that either. Here's your irony in all of this, man. Jim went to get the heroin for Pam. He overdosed on it. And then she told a whole different story from all this other stuff about the the club and the stall. She didn't tell him any of that. She told the cops that they went to the movies and out for dinner, listened to records, and fell asleep. According to her testimony, Morrison awoke in the middle of the night feeling ill and took a hot bath, and she said she found him dead in the tub. 
Nowhere have I ever seen anything that said Jim Morrison was found naked in that tub or that he was wet or that there was water. And I can't believe, well, maybe I can because it was different times and technology and uh, crime fighting, if you want to call that detection, crime detection, stuff like that was a lot different. And maybe it was just the Paris police in that time and they weren't too concerned about a dead hippie from the United States. I don't know, man. I don't know what to say either except for the fact that maybe the club owner did everything he could to protect it because it would have crushed his his club. Oh, yes. And so he had to do everything necessary. And Pam had to cover her story because she didn't want to go to jail as an American buying heroin right. in France. So they right. were at home doing wine and albums and eating food. All I'll say is that Brene went on to have a life and the theory about the rock and roll circus becoming like the headline and killing it is it definitely a real concern. But he went on to do radio, uh, write books. He's a vice president at Disneyland in Paris. So he went on to have a pretty good life, even though he was part of this sordid tale. And he was asked years later, he had any thoughts, always asked by reporters, any thoughts on the Morrison death? And he, he just turned and said to the reporter, for me, it's a very bad memory. That's it. In his mind, and someone who's gone on to success has weird shit happen in their past. Mm-hmm. It's kind of Bernays story. Rolling Stone did an article at the time, and they were talking about reinvestigating Jim Morrison's death. But I don't ever really remember there being a reinvestigation of it all. Do you? I do not, other than the wild conspiracy theories and, and the story that you mentioned that came out in, what, 2007? Yeah, that's it. I don't remember anything being investigated so to speak again there are a lot of questions and there are a lot of holes to his death there's no doubt about it a lot of holes and people lied to cover their asses but look at Bernay or Burnett's success and look at how many other people have had that kind of level of success after having to cover up something dark to keep their mm. momentum going And in capitalism, you see that kind of stuff all the time. And we're not dissing. It's just a reality. And I suppose that at the time, it seemed like the world to a man who was a young guy. And look how much he ended up going on and achieving in his life. So maybe he wasn't wrong, you know, that he would have been ruined if it was known that Morrison was found in his club. And the way it's moved forward, the legends Right. All the the big names, the legends, uh, Elvis, Jim Morrison, there's all this, you know, stuff surrounding Mm -hmm. their deaths and their personas. Others, too. And we talked briefly about the 27 Club. Let's think about it for a second before we hit the break. Okay. Because we talked about how Buddy Holly was a member of the 27 Club, right? Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson, the original member of the 27 (laughs) Club by our reckoning. The uh, charter member. Yes. (laughs) He's like Alice Cooper is to the Hollywood vampires as Robert Johnson is to the 27 Club. (laughs) Founding member and president. Like the hair club for men, for crying out loud. (laughs) Um, In the 60s, though, they added a lot of members. And Too many. I didn't realize till we started doing all the research that Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones death was two years exactly before Jim Morrison's. He died on July 3rd, 1969, which we know and talk about all the time. We talk, we went into it in depth in the Brian Jones Project episodes. Jim was the one who solidified that there was a club going on, and it was not a club you wanted to be in because, you know, just before, in September of the year before, we'd lost Hendrix. 
and then Janice, and um, Janice comes up in the second half of this story too, dude. In a way that I never knew. Uh, and then Jim, and since then others, Pam Corson, Jim's non-exclusive amore, let's just put it that way. His his woman, but not exclusive. You're listening to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, celebrating 50 years since Jim Morrison's passing. Summertime and a great pint go together like water, yeast, and hops. <laughs> And what a better place to go to get the pint that you want than Crooked Eye Brewery right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro. If I'm not mistaken, with Pennsylvania's restrictions easing, there is live music and some other great events going on at Crooked Eye. So not only do you get that pint, but you get to have a good time with your friends as well. They are fully open, and I went in to see the Crooked Eye Band, the full Crooked Eye Band, back together for the first time in over a year. And what a great time when they're in on second Saturdays. And you can get great music at Killer Crooked Eye near you at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne now. Stop on by, see live music, and have a pint of your favorites from Crooked Eye at Jamie's House of Music. Right in the heart of Delco. And there's something else happening at the brewery, Marcus. They are now serving spirits. Pennsylvania Craft Spirits, now available along with your finest brews and all the other goodies they have at Crooked Eye and Hapro. I just think it helps everybody to have what they want, and that's part of having a good time when you go in both at the Hapro Brewery location and at Jamie's House of Music. So wine and cocktails there as well. It's all part of the fun at Crooked Eye. Check them out at crookedeyebrewery.com. The best way to keep up with what's going on at both locations is on Facebook, though. They do a great job keeping us informed of what's happening at Crooked Eye or Jamie's House of Music on Facebook. Four in the cure for what ails you since 2014. Check them out. Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. And in the heart of Delco. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Well, I feel refreshed after a pint of Crooked Eye. You know what I realized that it's become my go-to there is the uh, Crooked IPA. Like, I had that coffee stout I was telling you about with the fudge, and it was mm-hmm. like a giant, delicious milkshake of a beer. 12% ABV, by the way. 
That's a strong so I, beer. I, I went to the 6.5 Crooked IPA to like kind of like take the edge off of that, but it was so delicious. <laughs> You're going to love it. And and don't you know, Pete brought me like the giant glass of it, so it was huge. Uh, we are the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, and this week we're talking about Jim Morrison. The 50th anniversary of his death is imminent. I have a theory that I've developed while doing the research for this episode that Jim Morrison might be the first rock and roll polymorph. Him and Pam Corson, you mentioned it, they had a non-exclusive relationship, which means that uh, Jim and she could and did enjoy many different lovers. And in Jim's case, they were pretty famous, including one of our podcast network mates, uh, Pamela DeBars, was with Jim at one point. Also, are you ready for the list? People sure. That I, I was shocked to hear about. Yes. Nico from the Velvets. I didn't ever knew that she and Jim were together, had a thing. But are you shocked? Uh, no. Art. Bingo. Mm. Yeah, bingo. And chemistry, too. Maybe mm-hmm. they met. It was like, ooh. Yeah, <laughs> it happens, yeah. you know. When they were on tour together, Jefferson Airplane and the Doors, him and Grace Slick had a thing. I wow. never knew that. I could see and, that. Yeah. The one that really surprised me, though, was the uh, alcohol-fueled encounter with Janis Joplin. Now, Janis was famous for sealing the deal with sex, as you mentioned before, right? Yeah. Uh, definitely right in there with Jim as far as being open and to everything apparently and so it's tough to say whether she or Jim really which are they concurrent in that role as the early polymorphic lovers and the fact that they crossed paths and that she didn't like it that she said she he treated her mean uh, to the point where she never referred to him as Jim or Morris and she called him that asshole the rest of her life and his man Can you imagine how crazy that incident had to be where somebody openly in public calls you that asshole when you're both famous like that? Like with the with the 80s or 90s, like little cutie pop couples, would they be calling each other that asshole after they had their incidents or or, uh, affairs? I don't know. The 80s hard rock couples might be doing a little bit Ah! of that. But the pop stars, no way, except for Madonna. She was pretty tough back then, too, and she didn't uh, put up with any baloney either. So maybe her. But I'd say for the most part, no. Like we were talking about before, Janice did not surprise me at all because she just was like, hey, if I like the look of somebody, I'm going to have sex with them if I can. Yeah, but when she goes south on you, she really went south. They were at a party. Remember John Davidson, the actor? Mm-hmm. They were at a party at his house, and she reportedly hit him over the head with a whiskey bottle. My God. Dad, could you imagine her and, uh, her and uh, Jim Morrison being in a drunken fuel rage fest together? No. That would be insane. <laughs> Bloody two great minds that got fucked up or messed up because of alcohol. Yeah, yeah you know, other substances Heroin were too. in play, but, but definitely the alcohol fueled a lot of the negative weird shit. I agree. Uh, I didn't realize is that uh, you know Jim, you know he the kind of influences he had had him thinking differently than 
not only his bandmates, but also a lot of other people in society. He was a unique kind of guy, uh, and it really comes through in his words, his lyrics, his poetry, uh, maybe better there than it does in his actions on stage and in life. There was some kind of Celtic pagan ceremony uh, where they, he was married to Patricia Keneally. They were friends who, uh, she was a critic. <laughs> Imagine, yeah, I just really want to have a Celtic wedding with you. So you write so good I, reviews on us. I, I, Let's get married for good reviews. Payola! But you, but you know in those days, you know, she was like, you know, I'm not giving you, just giving you good reviews. Uh, why not? Well, you know. Well. That's wild. Well. I did not know that until uh, we started doing all of this research on the episode. And it's funny, like many other episodes where we've researched, you think you know quite a bit, and then you research a little bit, and you read some books and parts of books and articles, and you're like, oh, I don't know nearly as much as I think, and this is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way I think the mind works. <laughs> it's totally the way my mind works. <laughs> now, now, Keneally said that uh, once um, he took up with Pam, that he kind of like turned away from her and like kind of ignored the, the whole thing. Like, yeah, that was just us in a field with some guy. It's nothing legal. It wasn't legal. And it kind of like hurt her, I guess, that he just kind of turned and walked away. And that's when he went to Paris. And Pamela had gone over and found them that uh, apartment so that he can make the move when he let everybody know, hey, I'm going to Paris, man. This is, you know, do your thing with the band and maybe we'll catch up in the future. We'll see, you know. And apparently uh, Keneally had been with child and there were a number of other uh, amours who were impregnated by Jim. And that was part of the situation he was in at the time of his death. Don't you love her badly? rough it was piling up against him if you think about it there was that on the personal level there were the legal issues because of the things that were happening at shows and on stage and he just decided i'm going to just get the hell out of here and we're better for a guy who you know loved nietzsche and baudelaire remember and uh, the Kerouac. french classic he just would what what could be better than to live in Paris where they lived and walk the streets where they walked and to drink the wine that they drank and you know places and stories told in real life and it all came together and that led to him to to head over there the final chapter yes that final chapter um but we watched that making of an album special on cable about their final record LA Woman and one of the things that really stood out was all three members of the band talking about how the band in some sort of deep way knew that this was their swan song with Jim because they knew he was going to Paris for a while to take a break because they had been going at a furious pace for a long time and he was fried. He put everything into that L.A. Woman album like the rest of the band did and it ended up being their swan song. I never really got the same impression that they felt that way. But I see your point now that you're mentioning it, you know, and it makes sense from his side, too. I'm going to give everything I got here on all these performances, because if you listen to his part of 
that album. It's strong all the way through. In some ways, they they went out when they peaked. You know, they were like bright, bright. The story of how they all come together, it's really an art story, if you think about it, man. I mean, they're all studying theater and film and cinematography. They all love music and are playing music. Obviously, the three guys that play the music in the doors are all top-shelf guys who are experts at that age for how well they could play and, and the way that they worked it together. It's pretty amazing stuff. I think their chemistry was one of the things as far as the musicians go that was really the strength all being very talented but together they were that much better and you feel it in the music their music makes you feel something no matter what you say when you listen to the doors you're gonna feel something During our research about this, one of the cool things that I learned was the Doors got really good live by playing every night that they could play live. And they did a two-week stint with them, which was Van Morrison's band, before um, before Van Morrison started going off on his solo projects. And Jim watched Van Morrison on stage and kind of learned mm. how he did his things and then took it to that next level. And then, as we had mentioned in the Stooges episode and when we've talked about Iggy Pop, how they all saw the doors. And you mentioned that at the beginning of this episode. And one of the strengths of Jim Morrison, and it also got him arrested a few times, was during the concert in the middle of the same sentence he would tell the crowd fuck you fuck you i'll kick your ass come up here and then all of a sudden i love you i love you you in and push you away and pull you in and push you away and just keep you there and it was all it was very hypnotic in so many ways and with the powerful baritone voice i think it really helped pull it off much better from an emotional impact when i look at some of the ramblings he wrote down you start to get a glimpse of what that next doors album could have been like or what he might have done lyrically or poetically uh, moving forward this line is just crazy stuff right this is my poem for you great flowing funky flowered beast great perfumed wreck of hell someone new in your knickers and who would that be you know you know more more than you let on Tell them you came and saw and looked into my eyes and saw the shadow of the great guard receding. Thoughts in time and out of season, the hitchhiker stood by the side of the road and leveled his thumb in the calm calculus of reason. Wow. And the hitchhiker ended up being 
read or told over Riders on the Storm in the American Prayer album that was released posthumously about Jim Morrison. Or it was the Doors music with his poetry right. and his stories on it. And The Hitchhiker is one of the stories that I was going to mention because I remember hearing it for the first time and being like, man, this is some dark-ass stuff over Riders yeah. of the Storm. It fits, too. When you find something like that, it's almost like a hip-hop guy locking in the beats. You just go, oh, holy shit, it works, you know? And I'm sure that they had that moment in the studio when they when that all came together. They never uh, raised the ship. It was down when Morrison went down, and the three of them revered as figures and for their talents and what they contributed with Jim to rock and roll. All took different paths. They did some stuff together. But really, the story of The Doors ended that night in Paris when Jim died. Oh, tell me where your freedom lies The streets are fields that never die He's buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, so famous for all the people who were buried there or nearby. And his grave site has become like that shrine that people all flock to, to pay tribute. Part to of drink the wine. Paris. Yes, yes. When you think about all the famous names in that cemetery, I know that people go there and they go walk around. But I wonder if most people understand who some of the people they're walking right by are as they take their little tour to see Jim Morrison and the other famous figures. Uh, there are so many incredible people buried in that cemetery. It's worth the trip just to say I went there and to see those people's graves. I'm not big into grave visiting and all that, but I thought that would be an interesting part of a trip to Paris. That's actually on our list of uh, places to visit when we eventually get to Paris, because not only for Jim Morrison's grave, but there's so many important European historical figures, writers, artists that are buried there that it's worth strolling through it to see some of the uh, tombstones of some of these famous people and the interesting thoughts or quotes that might be attached to their tombstones. And someone who had to come around a long way to deal with all this was Jim's dad, the Admiral. He came to understand where he had gone wrong as a father. He had come around to understanding Jim better. Time does a lot of that. Time and losing your son at age 27 will give you time to think about it. The gravesite that uh, people would visit was kind of a mess. I mean, they didn't even have his name right in the cemetery directory. So his dad kind of took umbrage and got into it a little bit and worked with the people from um, the cemetery and some people locally to place a flat stone on the grave so that the ground would not be damaged anymore. I think at some point you worry that they're going to try to dig, you know what I mean? That was kind of crazy. So they covered it, creating the current memoriam, if you will. There's a bronze plaque on the flat stone and it translates to, it's in Greek characters, it says, true to his own spirit or the alternate definition is according to his own demon. Hmm. Maybe, so, it's maybe it's yeah, maybe both. Yeah, maybe it's both. It is Jim. But Jim, that's a little bit on the grave site. There's a couple things that just hit me while we were looking into all this stuff. First off, the Iggy connection. Because we had talked about in our Stooges episode about how Iggy was invited by the three guys uh, to join the doors 
wouldn't that have been an amazing revival of that band? Like ACDC and Brian Johnson, probably. It may have worked. It very it well might have may really have. worked. And the Stooges weren't together, but neither was Iggy at that point. <laughs> the thing I didn't know is that the Igster, Jimmy Iguana, <laughs> and the other guys were inspired to form the Stooges after they went to a Doors concert in Ann Arbor. What? I know. That's crazy. Just crazy to wrap your head around that and how that came around full circle. Unbelievable. And that all makes more sense to me now, that whole chapter. But also what makes sense is the influence that Morrison had as a singer on him. Because look at some of the stage antics that Iggy would invent on his own, right? But also on some of the people uh, more of a later generation of rockers like, you know, Eddie, Lane, Wyland, guys like that. Not to mention his vocal clone, Glenn Danzig. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your children not to hear my words, what they mean, what they say. Mother, you got to talk about that, right? Because, I mean, Glenn Danzig basically did the Morrison shtick in his own way, vocally, in his own way over heavy metal. True. And these days, Danzig isn't even that heavy metal compared to all the bands that are coming out that really rock. So it's all, to me, so funny because he did. He had an influence on a whole bunch of singers, too. So many singers. And that band influenced so many people. Pearl Jam was influenced by them. The Colt was influenced by them as well. Well, let's talk about the Colt for a second because the influence is definitely there. Who else, other than Iggy, could have gotten an influence from the three remaining Doors members to join them on stage. The only time I ever saw anything re- resembling the Doors was with Ian Astbury on vocals at the Tower Theater. You know the day is torn at Let me tell you, it felt good to me. There were people bitching and complaining because there's always going to be people bitching and complaining. But to me, it sounded good. It wasn't Jim, but it was good. I can totally see Ian Asbury pulling that off. There's another aspect to Jim Morrison's legacy beside his death, which came out 30 fucking years ago. Is that right? It mm-hmm. is The Doors by Oliver Stone. Now, by that point, Oliver had already developed the reputation of being... Loose with the truth. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, when it came to a, a story like a biopic. And, and he did that. And, and and I don't know whether Val Kilmer was the best one to play Jim. He had the, the, the facade down. Yes. And Kilmer's a pretty good actor. You know, he really did. Uh, you you got to have script. Right? You got to have a good script. And you have to shoot it right. And you have to make it all work in editing. Doesn't sound right. You know that, John? Jim, man, it's still in time. Jim, I said we tried that Boston Nova beat. I think it's hot. 
Your lyrics kind of weird, man. You write one, man. And I think the actors did their part, but the rest, you know. Yeah. I like more the depiction of Jim in the Wayne's World movies. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Morrison. Cool. Who's he? A weird naked Indian. What am I supposed to do with my life? You should put on a concert in Aurora, Wayne. How am I going to get the bands to come? If you book them, they will come. It's like it makes no sense because he's dangling the shades on his face. Yep. And he's got his head cocked back. and he's yeah. But he's wearing black like a black uh, uh, long sleeve shirt and leather pants in the desert. That was the comedic part of that movie. And the little guy with the parasol. Yeah. That's hilarious. But, uh, but, you know, but a lot of people said the same thing uh, after seeing the Oliver Stone movie, The Doors. And when it comes down to the reactions to it, the members of The Doors themselves are probably the best ones. Ray said... It was ridiculous. It was not about Jim Morrison. It was about Jimbo Morrison, the drunk. God, where was the sensitive poet and the funny guy? The guy I knew was not on that screen. Wow. That's pretty harsh. Robbie Krieger was only slightly more kind. They left out a lot of stuff, but a lot of the stuff was very well done, I thought. And my favorite quote that I found in the the, uh, biopic part of this whole thing about the movie isn't even a member of the band. It's David Crosby, our favorite curmudgeon. <laughs> he is he's a new category. He is a stoner curmudgeon, which makes, you know, a whole different thing happen. He says, and I've seen that movie, and it wasn't like that. That's all he had to say about it. So that's kind of like how Hollywood has treated Jim over the years. Jim was actually in a bunch of films going back to his, his college. college days, which yeah. I didn't realize that. He had done a lot of things like that, uh, a couple of things that put his face out there. And yeah. people being people and, and receiving those receptors in their brains, you know, I wonder how many people saw Jim. And then when they saw him in the doors, went, it just had that kind of a Pavlovian response. Yeah. Like, oh, God. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. You want to read about the doors? Read No One Here Gets Out Alive. It's one of my favorite lines. When people talk about, oh, my hip, oh, my knee. It's, hey, remember, no one here gets out alive. It's That's It just kind of reminds you that, uh, you know, that, that life is life. And you got to make the most of it. Uh, and that was actually a pretty good book. Jerry Hopkins and Danny Sugarman, who knew, that, knew those guys, uh, wrote it together. And uh, good stuff. Good book. Worth the read. Yep. I got to find my moldy copy in the and basement somewhere. If you want to know also, you can find Jim Morrison's 80-page FBI file online. It's all there what? with Never redactions swipe. and everything. I found I, it late I last night. I had that. I, I found spent it late last, last night. Wow. I would have spent the last two days just going through. Can we can we do an episode later? Please, yeah. can we? Yeah, let's definitely. It'll just be Jim Morrison's FBI file. Absolutely. That'll be so much fun let's to just read from that shit. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, man. It's always so much fun doing this podcast. You never know what you'll discover, even if the (laughs) research department isn't providing it. (laughs) You know what? We haven't done much. What? Talk about the music of the doors. And all I'll say is I can listen to any one of those six original albums anytime. Anytime. Me too. Anytime. 
You know, Ray, we've talked about the band, and here we are talking about Jim himself. Mm -hmm. But at some point, we have to go into the albums and really break a couple of them down, like the first one, the last one. Maybe all of them eventually. Maybe all of them at some point. It depends on how long we do this podcast. We do it for another five years. We'll eventually get, like, all the Doors albums will be in there, just like some other bands, like Zeppelin and some (laughs) of the other bands. Yeah, we're going to sit and talk for 45 minutes an hour about this album. Yeah, get used to it. <laughs> totally get used to it. Because well, I would say doors. pick out any one of those albums um, and, or any of the live material from the Doors that's out there. Get out, find it, get on it, and enjoy some of their music. Plug in to the energy that was Jim Morris and find out more about him and the writers that he was inspired by. I think younger people are more open these days to kind of poetry that makes you think and break down the walls of structure and think for yourself. And more and more people are thinking for themselves. Only could be good for the planet, I think. Absolutely. Change the doors of perception or open the doors of perception. And don't become a member of the 27 Club. That's other, our other advice. To great you. advice. That's some of the best <laughs> advice we can give. Do not become a member of the 27 Club. Well, my mojo's rising, Marcus. But before we go, we want to remind people to tell people to check us online. You can email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're on Twitter at Imbalanced Histo. We're also on Instagram at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're getting good at talking about Histo. I just want to say. <laughs> It just rolls off your tongue. Good way to be in touch and let us know. Hey, if you think of something that we missed, uh, let us know. Thanks for spending time with us and remembering 50 years ago. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.